So good afternoon and good evening. The topic tonight is um, developing stability. But stability of what? Primarily, we're developing stability of awareness, of mindfulness, of our attention, of waking up in our whole lives instead of being constantly driven by what we want or don't want. But we're also developing stability of the wholesome, helpful mental states, such as goodwill, kindness, contentment. And we're also developing a mind that is predisposed to letting go of clinging. The more that these wholesome mental states develop, the easier it is to be mindful. The more mindful we are, the easier it is for these wholesome mental states to arise. In formal meditation, stability can sometimes be seen as the balance between mindfulness and concentration. Mindfulness can be defined as seeing clearly what's here, seeing it in a non-reactive way. One of the images that's used is being in a tower and watching the fields from a distance. We watch the activities below, the animals in the fields roaming, people walking, but we don't go chase after them. Just kind of see the whole beautiful picture of the valley below. If we're paying attention to the felt sense of the breath, we may notice all the different sensations just as they are. They don't have to be any particular way. Concentration, on the other hand, is the function of the mind that keeps our attention from wandering. It might be by focusing on a single object like the breath. That kind of concentration brings a deep calm to the mind. Or we can be concentrating on a moving target, what we call moment to moment concentration. That instead of uh, the breath being the object, being present is the object. Moment to moment concentration just is stays present with the flow of changing experience. Someone, um, I think earlier today, mentioned that when they try to do walking meditation, uh, his dog lays down across his path. Well, that's an example of mindfulness, right? He has to mindfully step over his dog. But it's concentration that allows him to continue walking mindfully, even though his rhythm was interrupted. So these two factors work together. They need each other. If we're practicing mindfulness of breathing, we need concentration to notice more than one or two breaths. When we're concentrating, 
Mindfulness lets us know if we've been distracted or if we're tense. Both of these qualities strengthen with practice. Now, take, for instance, a day of retreat like today. If we've all done all the sitting and walking meditations on the schedule, you've spent about eight hours in formal practice, being mindful in sitting and walking. And with all that time, the mindfulness and concentration muscles get stronger. But if the rest of our waking time, maybe another eight hours of informal time, if we spend it by distracting ourselves without mindfulness, without the continuity of awareness, our distraction muscles get reinforced. But as we bring mindfulness to our informal time, gently bringing our awareness to our activities again and again, both mindfulness and concentration continue to develop. It's what I like to call a virtuous cycle, the opposite of a vicious cycle. The continuity strengthens the formal practice. The formal practice strengthens the continuity in our day-to-day activities. As our minds get a bit settled, we're able to see more details of our experience. And this brings in the essential quality of investigation into our practice. Investigation is the quality that sees the differences between things. For instance, we can see the difference between a tense and a relaxed muscle. Seeing that difference allows us to let go of the unneeded tension. Seeing the difference between a relaxed muscle and slouching makes it clear to us that it's helpful to apply a little bit of effort to be more upright, that we breathe better for more upright. Or even if we're lying down, that there's a difference between being totally limp like a rag or a feeling of a relaxed, vital dignity. I've seen statues of the Buddha lying down, and they are beautifully dignified. We can also see the difference between a striving mind and a curious and interested mind. When we see that difference, it allows us to relax the striving. It just naturally feels better to be curious, to be interested. Investigation lets us see the difference between what's helpful and not helpful. That certain ways of thinking lead to agitation. That other ways of thinking lead to calm. It allows us to make the choices towards what's helpful. Being in balance feels better than being out of balance. So we can always choose in the direction of balance of wholesome, helpful mental states. In one way, 
we can say that most of our uh, mental suffering, mental agitation, discomfort, unsatisfactoriness comes from bad habits of mind. They're habits of mind in a way no different than biting our fingernails. They're habits of mind, though, that have been created by the conditions in our lives, the society we live in, our families, our schools, our friends. And in the same way that we were gradually conditioned to respond to our lives the way we do, the mind is able to be reconditioned in a more helpful way. One of the um, ways that they refer to um, the awakened one, the enlightenment, is um, the enlightened mind is the unconditioned mind. For instance, if a default way of being is being critical and judgmental of people, including ourselves, recognizing it as an unhelpful mental habit is the first step towards reconditioning it. Judging ourselves critically is just a habit of mind, like biting our nails. And like any habit, the amazing plasticity of the mind allows us to reshape our habits. But just like it took years to master the art of self-criticism, it can take time to reshape these habits of mind to be those of kindness and respect for ourselves and others. In my early practice, I was very harshly judgmental of almost everyone I met, including myself. As I kept practicing, I began to see how it was causing my suffering. And uh, there's a story I've told a few times before, but I'll tell it again. One of my teachers recommended an exercise to do in a public place. I did it in the airport. He suggested I sit somewhere where I, where I can watch people go by then find something that I like in everyone I see. It didn't matter what, it could be anything, anything I appreciated or something almost insignificant. It didn't matter, just something that I liked. And as I watched people, I noticed things I usually would have been too absorbed to notice. Some gentle smiles, someone helping someone, people hugging, people laughing. But then I saw a woman who was dragging her small child angrily, and immediately righteous indignation arose. She wasn't physically hurting the child. Otherwise, I might have said something. It was really a stretch to find something unliked in her. I persevered and found that, well, I liked the socks she was wearing. And so there was something. <laughs> but I did this over and over in different situations, and gradually something in me shifted, and I found myself much less likely to feel judgmental of people or myself. <clears throat> much more easily appreciating people, and not so easily believing my own judgments. That's how the art of cultivating wholesome states works. 
the slow but steady development. And with the practice, we can gradually strengthen our patience or confidence or kindness, equanimity, and so on. And what's really wonderful about these uh, wholesome states is it doesn't matter which one we strengthen, it seems to enhance all the other ones. Such as when we're patient, we tend to be kinder and more equanimous when things arise that we don't like. We can use the power of conditioning to let go of our unhelpful conditioning. For instance, during meditation, if we feel impatient, if we regularly say to ourselves some version of how much longer, we're actually practicing impatience. We're actually getting better at being impatient every time we say that to ourselves. Every time we look at the clock, how many more minutes? How many more minutes? So when we find those thoughts coming up, can we recondition ourselves in a more helpful way? We could instead remind ourselves something like, this moment has everything I need to be free. Or something that feels right to you, something that feels um, uh, not too contrived in the moment. Um, another approach to do when we, when we come up against um, a habit like this is to use humor. Uh, Jack Cornfield used to say, I'll be the first meditator to die of impatience. And um, humor is great inside the mind. It brightens the mind. So it's a really wonderful to allow ourselves to play a little bit. You know, when the mind gets contracted and difficult, you know, it's it's very appropriate to play, to bring a little bit of uh, humor and lightness. If we regularly judge ourselves as not being good enough, we're practicing self-criticism and getting better and better at it. Can we instead acknowledge every time it happens, oh, that's just a judgment, that's extra not give it any strength, not give it any power, just the thought. We develop any habit, skillful or not, through repetition. Every time we disrupt an unskillful mental habit, it weakens it. And with time, the default of the mind starts to stabilize into more helpful mental states. Any unskillful mental habit, we can disrupt by seeing it as it is, just being mindful of it, by going to the body. Or sometimes we actually want to change our focus. For instance, um, um, maybe I'm tired and I'll go back to the airport. I'm waiting at the airport in an uncomfortable plastic chair. My habit of mind might be to dwell on the discomfort of how much longer before my flight, how uncomfortable the chair is, my back hurts. And I could easily switch the focus of my attention to my environment, to all the interesting people around me, 
or to appreciating the amazing fact that I'll soon be flying through the air. There's a million other things I could focus on that would disrupt this habitual complaining of how uncomfortable I am. Life is full of both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. We have a natural bias to notice the unpleasant ones as those are the ones that can be dangerous to us. We're a bit hardwired to notice them. You know, if there's pain, it tells you there's something wrong. So it, it you know, raises a big flag. Here's pain. Uh, here's danger. Those things need to get at our attention. So we tend to notice the things that cause problems in life. We tend to divide life into work and play, into fun and boredom or seriousness, into good meditation and a bad meditation. We talk enthusiastically about our hike in the beautiful woods and kind of the opposite about going to the garbage dump. We see this process, how it develops in children. Um, My friend's four-year-old son would follow his mom as she vacuumed. Um, You know, he always wanted to have a rag in his hand and clean, and, and, you know, he wanted, you know, he wanted to push the vacuum, which is a little big for him. He didn't see it as anything different from any other form of play. But of course, she complained about having to vacuum enough times that the message came across. No, 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 this isn't play, it's work. But we value some some experiences more than others. Do we think that some experiences aren't worthy of our attention? I spent much of my time in all my years of school, impatient. I'd count not only how many days before vacation, but how many minutes before the bell rang, how long before I graduated, how many days. When I was in high school, I started taking yoga. And we do some really hard strength poses. They're really challenging for me. And I found myself impatient, tensing against the unpleasantness until it was over. And then I'd relax and enjoy the release of tension. I got better at it and kept challenging myself. But with each challenge, I'd feel that resistance. I wanted it to be over. At the time, I couldn't conceive of a different way to be. I started jogging then. You know, I would jog five miles a day. And I actually learned to enjoy it. I'd get a runner's high. It was wonderful. And yet, even with the runner's high, my mind would still find itself saying only one more mile or half a mile, only a quarter mile, you know, and my mind was just leaning forward, leaning forward. When I was finally in the work world, you know, and I was working for myself, finally experiencing the freedom of being my own boss, not subject to anyone's whims, 
I found myself impatient for the weekends, for the end of the day. Every form of impatience is a leaning into the future, a resistance to the present, and a deep belief that this moment isn't worth experiencing. And that that was kind of a shock to me to realize that, that that's really what was happening. I was saying half of my life, the parts that weren't fully pleasant, weren't worth experiencing. So when we divide life this way into work and play, fun and boredom, it supports not valuing our whole lives, all of ourselves. And it can become habitual to ignore those moments of our lives, trying to make them go by quickly and get to the good stuff. The Buddha said, you know, that to wake up, we need to be mindful um, when we're urinating, when we're defecating. You know, there there is nothing that we are supposed to turn away from. When we're, when mindfulness is stable and well-established, we can feel just as happy, just as free, cleaning the toilet as going for a beautiful hike. To awaken fully, to develop continuity of awareness, to be completely at ease in this life requires that we value all our moments, not just the ones we like. To have all our moments be worthy of our awareness. It requires not rejecting any part of ourselves, any mind state, showing up for all of it, When we divide life into what experiences we value and what experiences we don't, then we're regularly blown about by the winds of the world that tends to always give us quite a bit of what we don't want. The way one of my teachers used to say is, um, if we're not free when things aren't the way we want them, then we're definitely not free. The human body is constantly regulating for balance. It's constantly adjusting. And I do mean constantly. We call that homeostasis. If the calcium gets low in the blood, it takes it out of the bones. When the outside temperature gets cold, the blood leaves the extremities to protect the core, the organs. Homeostasis is the natural balancing of the body and is always active as the body is always in the process of shifting out of balance and back into balance in small, continuous ways and in the large rhythms of our day. We may be active during the day and sleep at night. The circadian rhythms, the the rhythms of our bodies. We work and the need to replenish with food Constantly, constantly balancing. And in that similar way, our minds are regularly shifting between 
useful thoughts about the future and past and what's in front of us now. We tend to understand our lives and our place in the world based on our past memories, experiences, things we've learned. And those are really useful. Both the functions of planning the future and evaluating the past are necessary activities for all of us. We need to evaluate what we learned and any mistakes we made. When we're committing to something, we need to make a plan, a shopping list for dinner. But this is very different from dwelling on the past in an unhelpful way or replaying things that were embarrassing or painful or leaning anxiously into the future. If we use the present moment as the reference point, we can make plans for the future, but we can do so connected to how we feel right now as we look at the future. Same with thinking about the past. If a painful memory arises, maybe a fight with a loved one, the memory triggers feelings right now. Right now we're upset. Right now we're feeling that pain. To be in balance, we need to remember the past, but we can do so grounded in our bodies, in our current feelings right now. What is your body experience right at this moment? As you're listening to me, is your body relaxed? Balance occurs in the moment, not in the future or past. If we're worrying about a meeting tomorrow, we're worried now in this body at this moment. And the body might be tense and worry. We can relax the body center ourselves in the body. Or maybe we're excited about a fantasy. The body may be leaning forward in anticipation. That's a different kind of tension. Regardless of what we think about, by including our attention in the body to our current emotions, to the present, we can come to balance. But it's a constantly shifting balance with mindfulness at the center of all of our concentric circles. I think Diana talked a little bit about this. Um, Essential to developing stability is embracing instability, imperfection, not because we're settling, you know, settling for less, but because it's the nature of life. If we're hungry, we may eat a big meal and we feel sated, we feel full. Oh, that was perfect. But soon enough, we want something else. Maybe we need sleep or shelter, need to work, medicine. Maybe we weed the garden and soon enough it's full of weeds again. There's no being complete with the conditions of life. Now, maybe we think we have everything we want in life, and now then we're aging, losing our vision or hearing. There's always something. 
We can't force ourselves to be free. But we can incline the mind in that direction. We can incline the mind towards letting go. If we're angry, we may not be able to change gears quickly. But by inclining the mind towards letting go of the anger, it begins the process of not supporting the anger, not feeding it with our stories. And eventually it passes like all emotions do. One of the things that can be helpful to support the stability of our practice is to periodically connect newly with our intention for practice, to remember why we practice. Over the years, I've periodically found it useful to take a few moments at the beginning of every sit and every walking period and to connect with my intention and why I'm practicing, my motivation. I mean, I haven't always done this. It's something that at times I've I've just felt like that was really nurturing and supportive for me. At times we practice for different reasons. Maybe we started because of some form of dukkha, suffering, maybe stress or anxiety. But maybe over time it changed, it shifted. Maybe something happened in our lives that's difficult to accept. Or maybe our intention shifted just naturally into more of an inspiration for peace, for freedom, maybe even for the well-being of all beings. It's not about finding the right intention, but to be sincere and authentic in why we're doing this. That's what motivates motivates us to show up, to be fully present, to not become complacent in the practice. When we teach, sometimes um, it seems like we give a lot of instruction, a lot of ideas, but it's important that our practice be simple, always starting where we are, in this body, in this posture, this moment. This practice is an embodied practice. When we're centered this way, balanced this way, It keeps us rooted like a tree with deep roots, not blown about by the winds of life. We can meet what's here in a simple, uncomplicated way. Here, just like it is right now, not how we may want it to be. And just like that, we can come to balance in this body right now. In this breath, in this moment, I'd like to uh, end with a quote from Ajahn Chah. Peace is within oneself to be found in the same place as agitation and suffering. 
It is not found in a forest or on a hilltop, nor is it given by a teacher. Where you experience suffering, you can also find freedom from suffering. Trying to run away from suffering is actually to run towards it. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you.